You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Good morning. I'm reading from Acts 12, from verse 1 to 24. Peter miraculously escaped from prison. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four guards of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap clothes and and your cloaks round you and follow me. The angel told him, Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me and rescued me from Herodotus and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had done on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the altar entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed She ran back without opening it and exclaiming, Peter is at the door. (laughs) You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter mentioned with his hand for them to be quiet and describe how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers, sisters, and, and about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small communion among the soldiers as to what had come of Peter. After Herod had a thorough, a thorough search 
made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered them to be executed. Herod's death. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with all the people in Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of vassals, a trusted person servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depend on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robes sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God, of a God, not a man. Immediately, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to flourish. Amen. Morning, everybody. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for this morning already, for your power to break chains. Oh God, we pray, continue as we hear your word and listen to your voice. Continue to meet with us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Brilliant. What a great passage. So we're in, we're in part nine of a 10-part series on Acts. So it's today and then Pete next week. And it's all about the early church. So we know this guy Luke, he wrote the book of Luke and then he wrote the book of Acts. And they're like two parts of this epic story. And, uh, and really there's, there's a, a theme that goes throughout Acts, which is that Acts is a continuation of the life of Jesus. Today I've called Rescue and Resurrection in Acts 12. So that should give you a little hint of where we're going in this story. Now, Paul was Saul a few chapters ago. He has this encounter with Jesus, the risen Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we get a glimpse right there that Jesus is considering what Peter and the church in Jerusalem, the early church, is doing as his work. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? And we're going to see throughout the whole next 25 minutes or so that it's not just that Jesus sees the church's work as his work, but we are also to see what the early church did and what we do here as a church and what we do in our lives to be a continuation of the work of Jesus. Now, I'll give you a health warning. If you look at this chapter in the light of us continuing to do what Jesus did and the early church did, it poses some difficult questions about are we choosing to live as radical a life as Jesus and the early church did? So we're going to ask ourselves some really um, interesting, probing questions as we come with that sort of mindset. Now, I want to start off by saying, yeah, obviously there's Peter, starts this chapter in prison, and he is miraculously released. And I want to just start by saying, prayer works and miracles happen. And you might think, oh, that's that. I mean, I've been a Christian for a while. Those two, those two phrases aren't all that controversial. But I want to say, today, prayer works and miracles happen. Now, this isn't the first time that we see persecution with the early church. We've seen that before. But here Herod is saying, the next day, he's going to bring Peter out and he's going to kill him. 
is going to execute him, probably with a sword as with James. And we see this phrase, but the church was praying earnestly for him. And we don't know, the church might have been scared. They might have been panicked, but they haven't given up. And they haven't just thrown their hands up in the air and be like, oh, it's over. There's nothing we can do. Even if they felt scared and powerless, they knew they've got a powerful God. And so what do they do? What's their response? They say, let's pray. And then boom, their prayers are powerfully effective. And Peter is led out of prison by an angel. Now, before you get the impression that the church that we're talking about was just the people that are meeting in Mary's house where Peter, you know, Peter goes and he, he knocks on the door and there's that sort of funny scene where they're like, oh yeah, I guess I won't open the door. I'll just go and tell them about it. And he's still knocking on the door. That's not the whole church, right? We think there might've been up to 50 people meeting in Mary's house there. The church at this point, we think is 5,000 men plus women, plus children. And so across the city, there are people fervently, passionately praying for a breakthrough. And what happens? Prayer works. Miracles happen. Now, the power of these groups is in their God, this explosive power. John Stott, who's an author, he said this, prayer is the only power which the powerless possess. It might be that this is what God wants to just, by the work of the Holy Spirit, put his finger on for you this morning, is actually miracles were part of the life of Jesus, the everyday life of Jesus. Melissa shared about, he's just walking and this lady, she touches his garment, she's healed. It's like, he can't help but do miracles. And then miracles are part of the early church. And the story of Acts is this continuation of the work of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the mission of Jesus that we're involved in. So it's good for us to say miracles are happening today and for us to acknowledge that that's something we should be seeking God for. Now, it might be that Luke is writing this passage saying the church is praying, particularly for people to read it in the future and to get the sense of, you know what, even if I feel I'm powerless, I can pray. I'm not going to take everything that life throws at me and just lying down and just accept it. I'm going to be someone who prays. So a question for you, even though we're only a few minutes into the sermon, a, a question for you is, is God saying to you that you could be not passive, not powerless, but praying about something in your life? And maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's something that you want to see change in this church. Maybe it's something you want to see change in this borough. Maybe it's something you want to see change in this nation. Maybe it's someone you know is going through a really tough time. It feels like they're under persecution. Maybe what God is saying to you this morning, you might just feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know what? Let's not be passive. Miracles happen. And prayer changes actual events. The church gather and pray, and they are sort of shocked that it works, right? They're like, what? Look, prayer changes things. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author in the US, he says, prayer, though it is often draining, even an agony, is in the long term the greatest source of power that is possible. So prayer works, miracles happen. I'm going to just throw up a picture of uh, two of my kids, Micah and Shreya. So Kez and I prayed for Micah when he was in hospital. As soon as he was born, he was having seizures. And we were told that we should expect for the span of his whole life, he would suffer the long-term impacts 
of trauma to his head in brain damage. And we said, as did many people in this room, we're quite powerless here, but we can pray. And we prayed, and praise God, Micah was completely healed. Amen. Miracles happen. A doctor came up to us and said, I just want you to know, this boy is a miracle. With Shreya, we were told by the paramedics, Kez was told by the paramedics, that Kez had lost too much blood before Shreya's birth for Shreya to actually be born alive. And God intervened. We prayed. And the doctors, when Shreya was born perfectly fine, they said, this girl's a miracle. Do you know that? And I just want to say there are lots and lots of great stories in this room of how prayer changes actual events. Miracles happen. But if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you know, the invitation is for you as well. If you would like us to pray for a miracle to happen in your life, we're a church that believes that this is a true story, that this actually happened and that miracles continue to today. And so you might say, all right, for the first time in my whole life, I'm going to pray for a miracle. But if you'd like someone else to pray with you, then I'd like to pray with you. Others in the church would like to pray with you. And who knows what's going to happen. All right, brilliant. So we've, we've said in the pulpit before, during Acts, the persecuted church, you know, they're really under the cosh, right? Lots is happening. James has been beheaded. And what that brings out of them in character is fervency, is passion, is zeal for Jesus. They're saying everything else, my own glory, my own uh, success, my own reputation, my own safety and security, I'm going to let them all die at the altar of following Jesus, his mission, his way. But moving on from prayer for a sec, we see the way Luke writes Acts 12 is he deliberately draws a contrast between the church who is seeking the glory of God and a guy in this chapter called Herod Agrippa. So let's have a quick look at him. So let's look at God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. When you walk through this story, you see a juxtaposition. Luke is saying, I'm going to tell you a bit about Herod. I'm going to tell you a bit about Peter. And Herod is going to be indicative of the rulers at the time who are anti-Jesus. And Peter is going to be indicative of the early church who are passionately going after Jesus. And some of the bits when the chapter is being read out, you might have noticed. But I just want to draw out as many contrasts as there are to help you see Luke is writing this to point out the juxtaposition and then we'll apply it to our lives. All right. The Bible, by the way, is really beautiful. You could read this passage quickly, but if you read it slowly and then again and then again, you see more and more of these patterns and themes come through. They're there. That's what, what Luke is putting them in deliberately. All right, so let's bring up. Okay, so I'm a chartered accountant by qualification. I like a good table. So this is one of two tables you'll see in the slides. Um, okay, so let's start with Peter, right? So Peter He's continuing the mission of Jesus by sacrificially building the church, right? We get that from this bit. But then Herod is introduced, and Herod is continuing a line of Herods. So there are different Herods, and all of them are opposing Jesus, right, and the mission of Jesus. So he's opposing Jesus, trying to end the mission of the church. We see that Luke writes, Peter is going up from Caesarea to Judea. And he deliberately makes the point that Herod Agrippa is going down from Judea to Caesarea. You've got these opposite directions they're traveling. Peter has gone in the previous chapter to the Gentiles to eat with them. But we get this little insight at the end. It's almost like 
It didn't even need to be there, but, but Luke wants to demonstrate it. He's hostile with the Gentiles, and he's refusing to share food with them. And then you've got this moment in chapter 12 where Herod seeks and accepts the glory and reverence of the people. It says this, that they're shouting, this is the voice of God, not of a man. He did not give praise to God. Luke makes that point. He didn't give praise to God. And then we've got Peter, actually in chapter 10, has this moment we heard of previously in the sermon where Cornelius meets him, falls at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up and said, stand up, I'm only a man. They're like the opposite responses you could have instinctively to someone trying to give you glory and reverence. And then this is, this is the bit that is the most obvious contrast, is that the way Luke writes it is an angel strikes them both. There was no need to necessarily write it that way, but Luke is making this point of juxtaposition. And so bound in a prison, unable to escape. It's almost like he starts in a grave, right? Peter is struck by an angel and suddenly freed. But what happens to Herod? He starts the chapter free to do whatever he wants in total liberty, ruling however he wants. But he has the opposite trajectory. He's struck by an angel and suddenly he's in the grave. Now, the Bible, the whole Bible, paints contrasts between a man, a woman, a person seeking after their own glory or seeking after God's glory. Now, you might be thinking, what does that mean, your glory? All right, let's talk about it this way. Who's the center of your life? And Jesus talks about you can't have yourself at the center of your life and him at the center of your life. But the whole Bible's full of stories where a character is seeking their own glory. And what happens to them? They're humbled. And that's the way it works. These are the different directions of the kingdom of God. We can choose to look to try and get approval from those around us, build our lives, our marriages, our careers, our budgets with God at the center or with us at the center. But Peter spent three years with Jesus, right? Peter had in his head these sorts of words ringing round from Luke 22. Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Peter's got in his head, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so you've got this contrast. One humbles himself. He's, he's happy to die for Jesus in prison. And what does God do? He exalts him. And the other exalts himself and is humbled. And so I'll come back to this sort of strap line for this section, which is Peter says in 1 Peter 5, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So Herod is in direct violation of Jesus's call to humility. Yes, I think we all agree with that. But this chapter, the way it's written, asks us a question, just as it does about miracles and prayer. It's not enough for us to approach Acts 12 and say, look at Herod. This juxtaposition is for us to look at ourselves. And so we, each of us, come to this passage and we should this morning ask soberly, in which ways? Are we in violation of Jesus' call to humility? Am I the center of my own life, at least in some ways? 
Am I living for my own mission? Am I living for my own ambition? Am I living with a proud spirit? And so today, I would like to ask you, during communion, me and Mark have talked about this a bit, we're going to do communion in a few minutes, to just come and ask Jesus. Come and let the Holy Spirit talk to you. In what ways am I seeking my own glory? And how this morning then can I repent and come back to humbling myself in every area of my life in order for you to exalt me when the time is right? Okay, so we talked a little bit then about prayer and miracles and humility and Herod and his seeking God's glory. Let's talk about rescue. Okay, so I call this sermon Rescue and Resurrection. So rescue is who God is. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself as a deliverer. And you might be sitting here this morning and you might think, there have been times in my life God has rescued me, God has delivered me. Now, the Old Testament, you know, you've got all these different examples of rescue, of delivery, deliverance. And you've obviously got the Red Sea and you've got the people of God coming out the other side and it's miraculous and they're rescued. And then you've got other people throughout the Old Testament. But then here in the New Testament, this isn't even the first escape from prison in Acts, right? This is just what God does. Things get to a certain point and he's like, you know what? I'm going to deliver these guys. I'm going to rescue these guys. He is by nature a rescuer, a deliverer. And we've sung this morning a bit about what God has done in our lives and the rescue of us. And we talked a bit about joy. And all I want to say initially about rescue is when we read a story like someone being freed from a jail, it's the expectation of the Bible is that we say, thank you, God, you did that in my life. And so the Old Testament stories of delivery, they're real, they're true stories. But through the lens of what Jesus has done for us, we're meant to look back and say, and he did that for me. I was spiritually dead. I was trapped. But you know what? I was freed by Jesus. And so how should we read this story about Peter? We should read the story thinking, you know what? I was as helpless as Peter in chains. And I contributed as little spiritually as Peter did practically to his escape, right? So we're meant to look at it with that lens. Thank you, God, you rescued me. So Peter is asleep. An angel strikes him and wakes him up. The chains fall off. Peter didn't contribute anything to that. The angel says, better get some clothes on. Why don't we walk out? The angel leads him out. The gate opens and he's he's out. He didn't contribute anything to his delivery, but God's a deliverer. God's a rescuer. And so we're meant to have a certain joy in our heart this morning as we think, this Peter story, that's awesome. But you know what? I followed Jesus. He defeated death and sin and despair and shame for me. And all I contributed was I held his hand as he led me out. And that's the approach we're meant to have. And so I love stories of rescue. And you might have already seen from this story, yeah, okay, I can see some ways in which this rescue from prison reflects other stories in the Bible. But this is what I want us to look at for a minute. It's the second table, guys. Be excited. Peter, sorry, Luke shows us that this is a resurrection replay. Now, as well as a rescue, the story of Peter escaping has deliberate, 
very strong patterns from the resurrection of Jesus 10 years earlier, right? So this, we're about AD 44. So 10 years earlier, Jesus breaks out the grave. Now, we're going to look at them. And partly this is to help us realize the Bible is beautiful. This is amazing. The deeper you go into it, the patterns. And that Luke, who's written about the resurrection, is writing about Peter. This is all one story, right? But in a second, we're not just going to look at how interesting this is. We're going to look at what this asks of us today. Ready for the journey? Should we do it? Jesus in the grave, Peter in the prison. The last table was a juxtaposition, black and white, completely opposite. This is a beautiful pattern. Okay, so the first trigger in your head that these might be similar is we're told that this is happening at the time of the Passover. And so you've got Peter in prison at the time of Passover. And then you realize, okay, so Jesus, his death and his breakout, that was in the Passover as well. And then you get this thing where you're like, Peter is chained. And it says very specifically, he's chained between two men. And you think, oh, that's, that's just like Jesus dying, sentenced to death between two prisoners, two criminals. You've got Peter. He's between two men at the time of the Passover. He's sealed away. And it tells us there are guards standing outside. And you think this is like Jesus Christ sealed away in the tomb with guards outside. And then the story goes on. An angel opens the prison. What does that make you think of? Okay, Luke is, Luke is doing something in the way he's telling this story. An angel opened the tomb of Christ Jesus. And then he appears, Peter, to a woman, Rhoda, who then goes and tells the disciples. You think, where have I seen that before? In the resurrection 10 years earlier, Jesus appears to the women who go and tell the disciples. And you're like, oh, that's enough. That's a lot of parallels. But then no, the disciples don't believe. And they think he might be a ghost. And you're like, those two exact things happened in Luke's account of the resurrection. The disciples don't believe, and they have this theory that maybe he's a ghost. And then Peter says to the disciples, go and tell what God has done, right? And then he leaves. He departs to another place. You think, well, what happened with Jesus, right? He goes to the disciples, and he tells them, go and tell people what God has done. And then he leaves. He ascends. The Bible's cool, right? Luke's doing this for a reason. Luke is doing this in writing Acts for a reason. God has obviously demonstrated in this scene that just as he is able to break the doors of the grave itself, of course he's able to break a prison door. Jesus opened up the prison of the tomb and his disciples are now opening up the prisons of the tyrants of this age. Think of it this way as it's a pattern, right? You know, we talked about a juxtaposition. This is a pattern. You might think of a pattern, you might think like you're an arty sort of person, like an art pattern, an artistic pattern. You might think maybe you're a numbers person, other accountants in the room, and you're thinking, yeah, okay, a numeric pattern. I am thinking of it more like a drum pattern, right? So we've got a drum pattern. You sit down at a drum kit and you've got all these different intermixed, interlocking rhythms that make a pattern, make a groove. Why am I telling you this? The reason that Luke has put this parallel in here to make us think of the resurrection is almost certainly to help us realize the pattern of Jesus' life is meant to be the pattern of the early church, is meant to be the pattern of our lives. Jesus' life isn't meant to be something we look back at and think, oh, well, that groove is done. That rhythm is finished. Instead, the early church picks it up. Okay, let's, let's think 
Luke, he starts off Acts by saying this. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. He's like nudging, being like, Jesus hasn't finished doing stuff, right? This is what Jesus began to do. And then in verse 4 or 5 of chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus ascended, right? But he told the the disciples to stay, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's this succession, the Spirit of Jesus Christ filling the early church, not to start a new rhythm, not to start a new pattern, but to continue in what Jesus has started. And yes, that means miracles that we talked about earlier on. Yes, that means teaching the way of humility. But actually, it also means thinking, how is our life like Jesus' life? How is our mission like Jesus' mission? The pattern continues. So let me close with applying this resurrection parallel to our lives today. We should expect to live the way of Jesus and continue the mission of Jesus. Now, if we think about it, Luke is writing in a way to demonstrate that we, and I mean we in this room, are formed as Jesus' people, and we are formed into him through baptism, through the Holy Spirit, through being a family, through being a body. We are to be the continuation of Jesus' mission. I've put it this way. In Acts, the experience of Jesus is worked out in the experience of the disciples' Christ-shaped lives who continue the pattern of what Jesus himself has done. I think back to when I was baptised it's quite a long time ago. I was baptized in water. And I think, what happened then? What was happening? Well, partly that was a symbolic act of Jesus has set up a pattern, a rhythm. Jesus was baptized. And then I want to follow Jesus, have the same pattern and rhythm of my life. And so I, in obedience, am going to get baptized and brought into the family of the church. I think back to when I was first overwhelmingly filled the Holy Spirit. What was happening then? Well, I know Jesus was anointed and empowered by the filling of the Spirit for his mission at the start of his mission. I know the early church had a moment at Pentecost where they were empowered and anointed for Jesus' mission by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that rhythm started in Jesus and it repeated in the early church. And that's for me to take hold of to let that be the pattern of my life. Is that making sense? So both in baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit, those are opportunities for us to follow the same rhythm, the same pattern. But those are just two examples. And the question for us in applying it is, what other examples are there in my life? So it's this question. Do our day-to-day decisions and our major life choices demonstrate a contrast to Jesus or a continuation of Jesus? Herod is a contrast to Peter. But Peter is a continuation of what Jesus has started. That's why the resurrection story is mapped out again. It's like, in our lives, how do we look like Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? So being united with Jesus, continuing his teaching, his way, and his mission, it leads us to ask questions about where are we in contrast to the life of Jesus? Toby, maybe you could come and play for a sec. We're just going to turn the last couple of minutes this less into bullet points and more into some reflection. 
So I'd invite you now to be not just listening to what I say and what comes out of the speakers, but what is it that God is saying to you this morning as we think about our lives, either in contrast to Jesus or in continuation of Jesus? I'm going to give some examples, and it might be some of these you feel like the Holy Spirit is just saying, yeah, this is you. Jesus, the way he spent his time. Jesus chose to spend his time. He set up this rhythm, this pattern of spending time with people in society who were the most looked down upon, who were the most rejected, the most humiliated or embarrassed. And so we got to ask the question, how are we allocating, prioritizing our time? I'm asking myself that question this morning. Is my life a contrast to Jesus? Or is it a continuation of Jesus in the way I spend my time and who I spend my time with? Okay, what about money? The way we prioritize our money. Jesus lived with this eternal perspective. He was unconcerned, really unconcerned with possessions. He was unconcerned with a luxury life. And so when we look at the way we steward our money, are we in contrast to Jesus? Is there a juxtaposition that is sinful? Or are we a continuation of the patterns that Jesus started, the mission that Jesus set in course? The way we are in our workplace. Now, I acknowledge not all of us go to work in the same way, but in our, in our daytime, the way we spend our working time, are we looking, as Jesus did, to point to the kingdom of God in our words? Yes, but also in our actions. Or do we try to get power climb the ladder, use others? Are we in contrast or in continuation to Jesus in that way? And then the last one, are we considering that maybe God is calling us to make decisions about our life with a potential downside of hardship, of trial, of suffering, of pain, of loss? Because the pattern of the resurrection has a crucifixion in it, right? And so Jesus set up this way of living, this mission, which is dying to ourselves, is primarily looking for the glory of God in our life. If every decision we make is about our own comfort, is about having an easy life, is about having more, is about ease, ease then is that in contrast or in continuation to the life of Jesus? We're not meant to be seeking comfort and a backseat in life. There are some people in this room who have chosen by the way they grow their family, maybe through fostering or adopting or having kids, that they're going to seek the glory of God and that might be tough. There are others who've decided in the life of this church, they're going to move overseas. They're going to go plant churches, start churches, support other churches. There are potential downsides to these things hardships but they are examples there are other people mark and i can tell you we've seen over the years people give huge amounts of money to this church and give away to the kingdom of god and there's sacrifice and there's difficulty in there but you think that's a pattern of the life of jesus sacrifice downsides there are people even in the last few months in this church who when the doctors have told them we think you should have an abortion have said you know what no, that's not in the pattern of Jesus. That's not the way and the mission of the kingdom of God. So I'm deciding, even though there might be downsides, even though it might be difficult, but that's, that's the Jesus way. That's the Jesus life I'm trying to live here. So 
So let's just finish by asking ourselves this question. Do our day-to-day decisions and our major life choices demonstrate a contrast to Jesus or a continuation of Jesus? And I'll just end by saying, if we are a church that without condemnation, without a heaviness, just keep coming back to Jesus and saying, commission me again, send me again, course correct me again. I want to be living the Jesus life. I want to be living for your glory. Then humbly, we'll end up with a church full of people making a massive impact on this borough, a massive impact on the lives of those around them. Because actually, we finish this chapter by seeing the word of God grew and advanced through the whole area. I believe that is what God calls us to in humility and in continuation of what he's done. Amen.